Once again, happy Independence Day weekend. I'm Tim, and as one of the pastors here, I'd like to welcome those watching online and extend a special welcome to family and friends who are visiting from out of town for the holiday. Here at North Sub, we believe that we are Americans best when we're not Americans first, that our primary allegiance is to Christ over any flag, yet we are so grateful for the blessings and gifts and freedoms we've been given in this country, including that our government cannot and does not compel us to speak contrary to conscience as we gather here together. Thank you, Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You won't find too many lazy people on the North Shore, financially speaking. It's not that they don't exist here, it's just rare, right? These zip codes where we live are populated in large part by people who have educated themselves on how to maximize returns on their investments, who are diligent and working hard toward their financial goals. And to the extent that that's reflective of a commitment to hard work and good stewardship, that's a positive aspect of our culture. For example, we as a congregation have benefited immensely over the years from a financial steering committee who has wisely invested some of our assets and realized returns that have then been able to be funneled back into ministry that otherwise wouldn't have been able to be done or funded here, right? So their hard work has been pleasing to the Lord and has borne fruit. But many churches in many locations don't have the luxury of consulting with financial experts in their congregations equipped to make such wise investment decisions as ours have made. And so... When people are ultra-negative about this area where we live, I get sad that they don't see the good. I, I mean, I, I know that they're right on one hand about the affluence and the entitlement and the homogeneity and the spiritual apathy that this place where we live can breed. Uh, that's all real, but don't some of the core assumptions of every culture fail to reflect the priorities of God's kingdom? And so as people who are called to be missionaries, like you and me, right, when Jesus called us, go and make disciples, the question I start asking folks is, well, what good do you see in Chicago's North Shore? We're looking for an associate pastor right now. You saw on Thursday's email that the search team has been formed, and just so you know, that's at the top of our list. The question, what's exciting to you, candidate, about living and ministering and maybe raising kids on the North Shore? If that question elicits blank stares, that person is never going to be effective here. Because, just like we would never send a missionary to Libya who thinks he's superior to Libyans and wants to teach the Libyans all that they're doing wrong, why would we hire a missionary to the North Shore who thinks he's got nothing to learn from the North Shore? Right? And so that's why we've prioritized that over the years, and we'll continue to prioritize that in this hire. And so, don't get me wrong, I think that the culture of the North Shore does present major obstacles to someone surrendering their lives to Jesus, right? It's really hard to do if you're immersed in the ethos of this place. At the same time, there are a ton of wonderful things about the ethos of this place that by God's common grace, we at North Sub aim to point to as a way of building common ground with our neighbors. We have many priorities that they happen to share. This place, for example, is known for Strong education, public safety, aesthetic beauty, good nutritional options, hard work, physical fitness. Now, are there excesses, 
excessive versions of each of those in which we make them out to be idols and they get in the way of the gospel? Absolutely. But in and of themselves, those things aren't negative or even neutral. They are positive cultural goods, reflective by God's common grace of the goodness of God's creation and of his character. And so we should have no problem affirming those, enjoying them alongside our non-Christian neighbors, even as we seek to point those neighbors to the destination that those signposts point to. And so that's a little bit of an extended aside. The original positive that I was pointing out about the North Shore, there's a norm here of working hard so that your investments yield returns, right? North Shore parents aren't raising their kids to hold their money in piggy banks for 20 years, right? They're teaching their kids to invest that money and put that money to work to earn more. It's a common understanding here. And that puts us in the same boat as the hearers of Jesus' parable today. Jesus assumes that his hearers understand that it's unwise to let your resources just sit long term. That you're much better off to take a risk and invest them. Right? But then built on that basis, catch what this parable is going to say. Jesus is going to imply something like, if we so adamantly insist that our financial investments yield returns, how much more ought we to insist that Jesus' kingdom investments yield returns? If we so adamantly insist that our financial investments yield returns, how much more ought we to insist that Jesus' kingdom investments yield returns? But that means, for some of us, maybe this parable challenges us to show the sort of diligent attention to kingdom investments that we've shown to our investments in other areas of our lives. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew 25. All summer, we're looking at parables of Jesus. Parables are stories that make a point by relating this thing that we know well, like financial investments, to this other thing that we don't know so well, namely the kingdom of God. We pointed out week after week, Jesus uses parables for two purposes. You probably remember what they are at this point. One, to unlock the secrets of the kingdom of God for his listeners who want to hear them. And second, to harden his listeners who don't want to hear him. And so now, at this point in the summer, we've seen a parable about types of soil. One about workers' wages, one about weeds and wheat. Now, today's parable is one of the better-known parables. It's recorded by Jesus' disciple Matthew. And he places this among a string of parables, all dealing with Jesus' future return. A little background there. Jesus, as some of you know, is the Son of God, been living with the Father from eternity past, but at a certain point in human history, he puts on flesh and becomes something he had never been before, namely human. This is what we celebrate as Christmas, right? His first coming. But while on earth, he taught frequently that the day would come when he would leave this earth, that he would go away for a while, and then he'd come back again. That'll be his second coming, yet to happen. So this string of parables in Matthew 24 and 25 all shed light on various aspects of what it will be like when Jesus comes back the second time to consummate his kingdom. Right? And so as such, if you just take a peek back to chapters 24 and 25, you see there Jesus will return like a thief in the night. He'll be like a master returning to find some of his servants working hard and others slacking off. He'll be like a bridegroom showing up for the wedding to find some attendants ready for the party and others out of oil in their lamps. Right? And now this one. So there are three parts to this one. Assets are distributed, actions are taken, and accounts are settled. The significance of the parable mostly becomes clear in the third section, so that's where we'll spend most of our time. But first, the assets are distributed. If you've got a Bible, Bible app, follow along with me as I read verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 25. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. So here we are. Man is going on a journey. If you scan back the previous chapter or so, you see that this sounds similar so far to some of the preceding parables. In all of them, it's who knows how long the master will be gone. Could be a while. And in this particular parable, before he leaves, he's going to distribute to his servants what? Talents. Not talents like special abilities, though. A talent was a monetary unit, right? On the conservative end of the estimates, one talent would have been 20 years' wages for a laborer. For our modern-day standards, we call it 30000 a year for a day laborer. We're talking about $600,000, one talent. One of these guys is entrusted with five talents, which would have been $3 million, right? The second, $1.2 million, the third, $600,000. So this is a massive amount of money being entrusted to these servants. About the servants, though, uh, a better translation is probably slaves. Maybe some of your translations have that, right? Almost always this Greek word is talking about a slave, not a voluntary employee. Besides, we'll see that the plot of this parable kind of doesn't make sense if these guys are voluntary at-will servants. They're slaves, which maybe causes a problem. Because it's reasonable that somebody would say, see, Christianity supports slavery. The issue with that reasoning, though, is that the parable a few paragraphs back was about a thief in the night. Right? So does Christianity support burglary? Now, Jesus felt free to draw analogies from what people knew without necessarily commenting on the ethical validity of the metaphors in question. Right? So that these guys are slaves... That matters because it means the task entrusted to them, and spoiler alert, that means the task by extension entrusted to us, it isn't some sort of voluntary optional assignment that these slaves can opt into but then opt out later if they're not really enjoying it. When the master hands them the money, they've been committed to a task. There's an obligation now. And what's the obligation? Well, when a wealthy person entrusts his assets to someone, Jesus' hearers would have assumed what most contemporary North Shore residents would assume that the task was to grow the assets. The task can't be just keep my money safe and unharmed. Because in that case, look, this phrase, depending on each one's ability, that doesn't make sense, right? Ability to do what? I want to ask for a show of hands of any couch cushion money hiders who are here. Uh, I know there are some. Not, and it, I'm not trying to be insensitive here. But presumably, there isn't much difference between one person's ability level to put money under couch cushions and another person's ability level to put money under couch cushions, right? But if the task you have in mind is not just the safekeeping of your wealth, but the growth of your wealth, now this phrase makes sense, right? Because now you're going to have ideas about who has more or less ability, so to speak, to do that, to grow your wealth, to take what you give them and multiply it. So in summary, these slaves have been given a non-optional task to grow their master's wealth. What's the significance of this imagery so far? Jesus doesn't explain this parable explicitly like he does some others, but in context, the meaning is plain enough. Jesus is the master who's going away. He's soon going to leave his disciples to go prepare a place for them in heaven. This journey, then, depicts the time between his first and second coming. And he prefaces the parable by saying the kingdom is just like this, which invites us to look for ourselves in the story as members of his kingdom. Right? 
but that makes us slaves. And you say, maybe we say, I don't want to be Jesus' slave. That language is extra distasteful to us because of the legacy of the American brand of slavery, which is much different from the slavery Jesus' hearers knew of here. That said, slavery is slavery. And the stunning reality remains that slavery is one of the pictures the New Testament uses repeatedly to depict Christians' relationship to Christ. Specifically, according to Scripture, each of us is either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. In other words, we don't get to choose whether we're slaves. We all are. But we do get to choose our master, right? And that's an important choice because it turns out that all masters are not created equal. And the argument made in the New Testament is that paradoxically, the ultimate freedom that a human being can experience is found in slavery to Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 6. Like the train that's never more free than when it runs on the track, constrained by the rails. So we are most free when constrained, in a sense, by our joyful, willing slavery to Christ. But as such, this parable makes it plain that we slaves have been given a job to do. We've been called to take what's been entrusted to us and to increase it, grow it, put it to work and multiply it into more for his kingdom. So I don't know that we need to even wait any longer to ask the big question for today. What has God entrusted to you? King Jesus, what has he entrusted to you? What's the talent, so to speak, or the two or the five talents that he's put into your hands? Maybe it is material wealth, like in the parable. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your place in your neighborhood. Maybe it's the hearts of your kids that are under your care. Maybe it's your season of singleness in which you have time to minister to others and and come alongside them. Maybe it's something that you're good at. What you've been entrusted with is not identical to what anyone else on this whole planet has been entrusted with. The combination of relationships and resources and abilities. King Jesus has gone away, but not before leaving you with a specific set, a specific and unique set of abilities, resources, relationships, and opportunities. What are you doing with it all? Are you aware of your obligation to do something with it? Or did you think it was optional, like an extra credit assignment? Let's see what each of these servants does with what he's got. Uh, They take action. Let's read verses 16 and 16 to 18. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two, that's $1.2 million, earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So the one with five talents goes off, gets 100% return on investment, doubles his master's profit. There's a hint here that at the diligence that contributed to such a healthy return. See that immediately there? He seems to feel urgency about this. He doesn't delay in getting to work for the master. The one entrusted with two talents, same thing, doubles the deposit. Remember, and this is before anything like a stock market, right? So turning around this kind of investment increase wasn't surveying stock tips and choosing the best one, right? It was maybe buying a boat and nets and hiring some fishermen then you sell the fish and make money right or you buy a field and plows and animals and seed and then you hire some workers to turn out a crop right these two servants are getting after it would have taken hard hard work to turn five talents into ten two talents into four the third servant takes a different approach 
this point in the story, we don't yet know why, but whatever the reason, he digs into the ground and deposits his $600,000 there, where it will hopefully remain untouched until the master's return. So think back to the question of what has God given you? It's a big question I want us to just kind of keep in the back of our minds all morning. What has God given me? Which of these slaves' stories so far most resembles your own? What have you been up to with what God has given you? By the way, that's a bit of a different question than just, do you work hard? It's an important question, but not the question here. The parable is really asking us, have we set out with a sense of urgency to multiply God's assets, particularly, and to expand his kingdom? Right? Like It's possible that we could look in the mirror and realize that we've been busily working at everything except at multiplying God's assets. And on a personal note, since transitioning to the vocational ministry 10 years ago myself, I found there's a new temptation in this regard for me. And some of you who are going into ministry or are in ministry might feel this too. There's a part of me that every once in a while will go, this is going to sound bad. It's true, though. <clears throat> Man, nobody works harder for the kingdom than me. You know? Right? Um, like, I'm a pastor. I deserve to take it easy for a while. All the God stuff, the Jesus stuff, right? Let me let this treasure sit for a little so I can focus on some of my passion projects, right? So some building of my little kingdom over here. There are lots of versions, is what I'm trying to say, of burying our talent in the ground. And some of them look on the outside to be very industrious and hardworking. What's left here is the longest section of the parable in which the accounts are settled and we learn the master's assessment of everyone's performance, for lack of a better word. Let's take a look, verses 19 to 30. Uh, we won't read it all the way through, I'll just kind of chop it up here. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. PSA, Jesus is coming back. Amen? Or we'll die first. It seems he wants his disciples to be prepared for the possibility that it will be a long time before he returns. Now, 2,000 years later, it might still be a long ways away. We don't know. On the flip side, it might be this morning. Either way, the time is coming soon. Soon. When each of us will stand before him one way or the other and give account. Every one of us. If you've ever found yourself at a funeral feeling skeptical about how the pastor or priest always somehow seems certain that the person who died is automatically going to get a thumbs up from Jesus at the end, you're right to be skeptical. Right? Not everybody will. The settling of accounts will be real. Everything will be laid bare in his sight. Are we ready to stand before God and settle the account of what he has entrusted to us? The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents? See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. So this is truly wild, okay? This dude was faithful over $3 million or more in today's money. Yet from this master's perspective, it was like, hey, that was my throwaway money I let you handle. Since you were faithful with that, let me put you in charge now of some real wealth. You were faithful over a few things. Let me put you in charge over many things. 
Do you know how beyond our wildest imaginations the kingdom of God must be in its scope if $3 million is play money? Think about the implications of this too. In the coming kingdom, brought to its fullness in the age to come, we are going to be working. Do you know we'll be working for eternity? Work that never makes us tired or frustrated. Work with no exhaustion or failure. Work that feels like a deep, deep rest. But if we're faithful with the few things he entrusted to us here, we get the privilege of being put in charge of big stuff there. But maybe even more surprising than all of that to Jesus' hearers would have been that last sentence. Share your master's joy. This isn't how a master speaks to his slaves. We expect a master to say, hey, I'm your master. Your job is to ensure my happiness. Meanwhile, here's this master. Come share my happiness. And you can sense some of that happiness already in the slave's tone, can't you? Master, you gave me five talents. Check it out. I got you five more. Right? You, can, you can sense the, the joy, that, that shared joy. It's like my kids when Sarah travels and we create a project for her in her absence, right? Like, mommy, they say, mommy, come and see what we did. We can't wait to show you. Are you so proud of us? That shared joy actually seems like it's the pinnacle of the whole intended experience here, right? The ultimate reward of our work for the Lord is that we get to see the delight on his face and bask in it ourselves and enjoy it. The satisfaction of, okay, this is what I was tasked with doing. And I'm doing it in a way that's going to make my master so happy. By God's grace, he gives us access to the little taste of that feeling here on earth during this life, right? Like, God, you caused me to cross paths with this neighbor. You gave me the courage to share the good news with them. And now they've come to faith, God. God, you entrusted me with children and guided me as I parented. And, and now they're raising their own kids to love and follow you. God, you gave me a bedroom in my basement, and I shared it with a missionary who was refreshed and encouraged to continue in the work you called him to. We get glimpses of that godly sort of pride here and now, even while we await the fullness of it in the future. The sharing in our master's joy. Those are sweet moments. Now let's see what the master says to the second slave. This guy only earned two, so probably the master won't be as positive toward him. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents? See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. You see it? Identical language to what we saw back in verse 21 with the guy who had five talents. What's that mean for us? that Jesus uses the exact same words for the five-talent guy as he does for the two-talent guy. It means that while we're tempted to be jealous of others who seem to have been entrusted with greater gifts or more of a platform or greater visibility or a larger sphere of influence or more charisma or better connections or an advantageous financial situation, what God cares about is what we did with what we were given, period. Anybody need to hear that this morning? And no, God doesn't distribute his assets equally. And we can argue with them all we want about how unfair that seems, but the reality that we've seen in other parables already this summer is that it's all his. He can do what he wants with it. And certainly none of us have been given less than what we deserve. Right? But if we're faithful with the little that we've been given, here's the upshot of that. 
will be entrusted with more. If we wish Jesus would entrust us with more, the best thing to do now is to be faithful with what he's already given. Then we get to experience eternity, spend eternity experiencing the joy of being put over many things for his glory and for the increase of his kingdom. Okay, so now what does servant three say for himself? Let's take a look. Verse 24, the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. Now, how much of this sincerely reflects how he feels and how much of it is just because he's flustered and on the spot? Unclear. But there's value in analyzing this slave's words in order to assess in what ways we might be in danger of slipping into the same mode he was in. Remember how the other two slaves began their speech. How did they begin? They said, Master, remember what you did for me? You gave me five talents or you gave me two talents, right? Here this third slave starts out not with a recounting of the gift given to him, but instead, Master, I'd like to begin by alerting you to the flaws in your character. Like from start to finish, he takes no ownership. It's like Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? It's because of the woman you put here, God. She convinced me to do it. And since you were the one who put her, you put her here, it's your fault as much as it is mine. Right? It seems like a similar mindset in this slave. God, it's because you're so harsh. Or master, it's because you're so harsh. I was afraid of you as any reasonable person would be afraid of somebody who gains profit in questionable ways like you do. So here, take what's yours. Right? See the deflection of ownership again, and even in the last sentence, what's yours? Distancing himself from it. Do we detect any concern here for the master's goals? No. We can sense disdain for the master, resentment. It's almost like he's saying, hey, before you try to put me on the judgment seat, master, it's time you look in the mirror. And this sentence about reaping and gathering, you're a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed, this might specifically mean something like, we, your slaves, do all your sowing for you. We scatter all the seed, and then when it's time to reap and gather, who gets the profit? You do. We do all the work, and you get the glory. Whether it's that or some sort of other accusation of theft or oppression, the gist is something like, you're the big rich owner. Nobody stands in the way of your profits or they get crushed. You always find a way to get yours, and I was scared to be part of that, so take what's yours. I buried it for you. Here it is. I don't want any part of this whole thing. Honesty time. Do you see yourself here in these words at all? Here's what this might sound like in our own language today. Just a few examples. We might say, or at least think to ourselves, yeah, I mean, people are probably right that you're up there in the clouds, but if you're so big and powerful, why'd you let my mom die? Why has my life been so hard? I mean, I get it always works out for your glory. That's cool for you, I guess, but I guess I'm just saying don't rope me into your schemes. Leave me out of it. Or, hey, I'm kind of miffed by the suggestion that I'm supposed to slave away for you down here for your glory, like my whole life is supposed to revolve around you. What about my fulfillment? What about my dreams? What if I never wanted to be your slave in the first place? What if I wanted to build my own livelihood free from you? You're asking me to do all the sowing. When do I get some of the profits of what you reap? 
Or, I know you're about to come at me with how I'm not meeting your expectations. I've heard about you that you're so cruel that you send people to eternal torment and hell. And I've always said, if that's the kind of harsh God that exists, I don't want any part of being associated with him. Right? Any God that would send people to hell is not a God I want to spend eternity with anyway. So here, take back what you gave me. Keep it. I don't want it. Ever felt any version of any of those? You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. Let's find out how the master is going to defend himself. Surely he'll say something like, no, I'm not harsh. You got me all wrong. Sorry for the misunderstanding. Watch me prove to you I'm not like that. Let's see what he says. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see now why this parable only makes sense if these are slaves as opposed to voluntary servants or hired workers, right? It's not evil or lazy for a free will worker to opt out of a job and choose to work a different job. What's evil is for a slave not to do the job he's been assigned. Notice, and this is so important, this slave did not squander his master's money. This slave did not embezzle it or repurpose it for his own use like we've seen in other parables this summer. What he did that was so egregious to deserve painful expulsion was simply to neglect the work. Neglect to work toward turning the master a profit. That's it. Just like squandering gets you weeping and gnashing of teeth, just like embezzling gets you weeping and gnashing of teeth, letting it sit there, it turns out, also gets you weeping and gnashing of teeth if you're a slave charged with enhancing the master's assets. So as Christ's slaves, friends, at the end of the day, we are not autonomous beings captaining our own ships, picking and choosing which of Christ's orders to follow and which ones to opt out of. He left us with a job. And when he comes back, he's going to ask us to show him what we did with the job. If we did the job, it's going to be amazing. Blessings keep coming and coming, more than we could need, and then more shows up, like, along with new responsibilities for us to delight in. We'll share in his joy for eternity. But if we didn't do the job, Jesus teaches us here that it won't just be, ah, shucks, you could have gotten extra credit this year, but you missed out. No, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness. To be blunt, there's no category presented here for, I sincerely belong to Christ, but didn't do anything to increase his assets. By definition, a true Christian does enhance Christ's assets. A true Christian does produce a profit using what he or she has been given. And even more than that, a true Christian is marked by our heart posture regarding the work we've been called to. True Christians, in other words, experience delight in our slavery. I get to be his slave? 
I get to be entrusted with that task. I get to stand before him and show him what I did with what he gave me. What could ever be better? As opposed to, oh, what's this guy's deal? Right? Assigning me to slave away down here at these jobs so he can pad his portfolio while he's off wherever he is. I'm getting a short end in this arrangement. And look, maybe, maybe you empathize with the slave's instinct that God is scary fearsome he's sending people off to hell maybe you're like well from what i know about god he just seems ready to bring down the hammer people of other faiths people of other sexualities every anyone he can but the master in the story exposes that excuse for what it is you see that instead of defending himself the master just says in effect oh you thought i was harsh and that i'm gaining profit using questionable means let's say you were right if you were right, you should have at least put my money in the bank so I get a few percent interest. It's clear, in other words, that your fear wasn't really about failing or messing up because a bank is just as safe as if you leave my $600,000 rolled up in a napkin and buried in the yard, right? The risk is pretty much equivalent, but if it's in the bank, you're at least minimally cooperating with my goals because I'm getting a little bit of interest now. The truth is you don't really care about my goals at all, which is evil. And you didn't want to put the work in for me, which is lazy. If you were at all worried about my harsh punishment, the fear you claim to have should have at least motivated you to do something for me. But because you didn't do that bare minimum to further my assets, you've shown that you truly despise me. You're not interested in sharing my joy at all. In fact, you resent my joy. You've resented it all along. You'd rather go off and seek your own joy apart from me. And so apart from me is where you'll now be. In the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, friends, if God seems scary to us because we've heard he sends some people to hell, then shouldn't we at least cooperate with his agenda so that we won't be sent to hell? And I, I wouldn't have always said that, right? But is that not what's being said here, right? How foolish would it be for us to cooperate in our own sentencing to pronounce our own sentence. I didn't do what God assigned me to do because he sends people to hell. Better to put it on deposit with the bankers. In other words, at least minimally try to participate in his goals and submit to his rule, right? Some of us started out our Christian lives that way. I'm one of them, right? I remember it like it was yesterday. Kindergarten, learned that there's heaven and hell. Uh, my thought was, seems fair, but hell sounds horrible. So how do I make sure I don't go there? I asked that to somebody, my parents, my kindergarten teacher, and from then on, I prayed a prayer and tried to live my life based on a trust in Jesus. Now, would it be healthy if my Christian life today, 30-something years later, was still motivated on avoiding hell? No. But God sometimes takes that little kernel of a submissive posture and starts to cause us to experience the freedom that actually exists in belonging to him. Right? And then before long, a maturing Christian is no finds that they're no longer serving out of fear of hell, but rather out of the incredible delight of sharing Christ's happiness. Right? Our journeys all look different, is what I'm saying. And some of our journeys legitimately started with, well, I don't want to go to hell, right? but they don't stay there. Whatever the differences in each of our journeys, this parable reminds all of us that in the end, none of us are going to have any excuse. He'll show all our excuses to be the foolishness that they are. Whatever legitimate hurts we've experienced, whatever valid questions that we have, 
whatever sincere doubts that we wrestled with. And he is tender and empathetic to all of those. The fact remains that at our cores, our deepest problem is none of those things. Our deepest problem is that we're evil and lazy. And it's our responsibility then to choose between dealing with our hurts, our questions, our doubts while we work for his kingdom goals or whether we use our hurts, our questions, our doubts as excuses for our refusal to work for his kingdom goals. Which one of those we choose makes all the difference. And so here's our big idea today. Since Christ will return to see what we've done with his great treasure, let's be diligent in working to improve his assets. Since Christ will return to see what we've done with his great treasure, let's be diligent in working to improve his assets. In the same way that we're not content to tuck our money into the couch cushions, let's not settle for a negligible return on Christ's investment. He has enlisted us as his stewards. We've got a job to do. And one day we'll report to him about the returns. What has God given you? The neighbor who just walked by your house, stopped to say hi. What have you done with that neighbor relationship? You've got the ability to play a musical instrument. What have you done with that musical ability? You've got a home that has a spare room. What have you done with that spare room? Most of us, without needing anybody to give us a pep talk, will invest this week in our physical health, in our financial health, in our family's relational health, in our career health. In what ways are we seeking to maximize the kingdom impact of our lives on others around us? What about sharing your conversion story with your neighbor? What about singing a Jesus song with your kids and explaining the lyrics to them? What about praying over your spouse? What about asking a younger person in the congregation to meet you for lunch so you can invest in them? What about teaching our preschoolers downstairs? What about sharing with coworkers what you were reflecting on in your small group this week? If we aren't engaged in kingdom work, it's not just that we're missing out on a positive opportunity. There's a real danger of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because persistent, defiant resistance of the job given to us reflects a deep-seated apathy to our master's goals that can't actually coexist with a true relationship with him. This parable teaches in no uncertain terms that kingdom uselessness is grounds for rejection. Now, I know we're already long here, but I feel compelled to address one more potential point of pushback in all this. Because I can imagine that somebody here, probably, probably more than one person here, feels like, this is exhausting. Uh, as I've journeyed as a Christian, I've broken free, finally. It took me a lot of hard work. I broke free from this hard work for God mindset that I used to have. And I've learned to rest in him. It's been so sweet and refreshing. Now you're trying to, feels like you're trying to lure me back into the hard work for God thing. Anybody? We're in an age that loves rest and self-care, to which I say, yes, period, full stop, yes. In many cases, we need more of that, not less. In fact, you're going to hear a testimony about that soon from a North Sub member. We're putting it together. It's so important for us to be reminded about the importance of acknowledging our limits and not trying to overextend ourselves and overwork, right, to rest in God, yet, in some of our rest and self-care circles, you almost never hear the other side of the coin. 
about the importance of hard work for God, despite how often it's spoken of in Scripture, right? In other words, there are two ditches, and there is a ditch that we must avoid over here called spiritual laziness. And even many hardworking North Shore folks will fall into that ditch as they invest effort into everything except the kingdom of God. See, when God's got work for us to do, it's not virtuous, actually, to sit around practicing self-care to the neglect of his mission. There are seasons in which he calls us, like the Apostle Paul, to sleepless nights, to pour ourselves out like drink offerings. It's not inherently bad to be exhausted at the end of the day because of how hard we work for the Lord. But part of what makes this parable so sobering is that we've all failed in what it calls us to. We've all slacked off at times when we were being called to work. Haven't we all missed opportunities to invest in God's kingdom? Haven't we all backed down from taking a risk we really should have taken for the Lord at some point or another? Yet there's good news. The best news. That that outer darkness in the text, reserved for the wicked servant, Jesus went into that darkness for us. Literally, the sky went black as he hung on the cross. Jesus went through hell on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. He has subjected himself to the judgment that he himself announced in our parable in Matthew 25. And his sacrifice paid the price for our freedom so that we, his slaves, can spend eternity sharing in his happiness. If you haven't yet met Jesus, tell him you want to be his. Talk to him like you're talking to a friend. Say, I want to be entrusted with the treasures of your kingdom. Take me into your family. I want to share in your joy as I do your work. Break me free from my slavery to sin now and accept me into your service. If you pray that prayer today, today you could pass over from death to life. You could be entrusted with his kingdom and start to multiply for his purposes. If you have met Jesus, let's get to work. People find time to do the things that are important to them, period. We've got time for pickleball and social media and vacation and analyzing the markets. Let's take on a sense of grace-driven urgency, grace-driven urgency about multiplying Christ's assets during this earthly sojourn. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've entrusted to us. We do thank you for the rest that you grant, for the freedom that exists in you, for the fact that we don't have to perform to earn your love. Yet, at the same time, in gratitude for your love to us, in gratitude for your grace shown to us at the cross especially, we want to be people who work hard for you, who leave it all out on the field at the end of our lives, and who hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come share in my happiness. We want that more than anything, God, to share in your happiness. We look forward to the day when that will be uh, fully realized for us. And until then, um, fill us with a passion uh, to use what you've given us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.